Ethics is something that everyone will have to deal with in their life. Like it or not, you're going to have experiences where your ideas on right and wrong will be challenged. How will you handle them, and what will you do? Should you be concerned about them if they don't directly affect you, or if you don't know about them? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. In this special three-part case study series, episodes 80, 81, and 82, I'm going to take a closer look at an industry that has recently come under media scrutiny in Australia for its treatment of animals. It's the live animal export industry. My guest in the series is Dr. Lynn Simpson, a highly experienced vet who's completed 57 voyages over 11 years shipping Australian livestock to the other side of the world for slaughtering and processing. Many questions are raised, and despite plenty of investigation and research, there are still precious few answers on what to do with this highly controversial industry. It's a complex story, and it involves a great deal of suffering. Is it ethical? Most of us will never see it, so should we worry? By way of audio introduction, the sound you're currently hearing is the sound of a high-pressure hose, about the size of a fire hose, being used to wash down the decks of a live animal export ship. Picture in your mind a deck on a ship crammed with huge beasts, doing their best to shuffle around as the high-pressure hose blasts away at the sewerage clinging to their hides and swilling around their hooves. Eventually, the sewerage just makes its way into the ocean. We begin our three-part series with Dr. Simpson talking about life on the wharf and life at sea. In part two, we take a look at some of the things that can happen in port when the ship reaches its destination. And in part three, we talk more about the industry itself and the roadblocks to reform. And a warning, some listeners may find this story distressing. Dr. Lynn Simpson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Colin. This is obviously a very sensitive issue. Uh, There's a lot at stake here. And uh, something I just want to make very clear right up front is this is not about being a vegetarian, nor is this an anti-meat industry argument. That's not the purpose of this discussion this afternoon. So let's be absolutely clear on that for our listeners. But again, for our listeners, something that I'd really like to ask you, uh, and this might sound like a very simple question, but what actually is live animal export? Because for those of us who never see it, um, you, it might just be a, another industry that you hear about or, pe- or perhaps not. So what actually is it? So live animal export is essentially taking a live animal of any type and moving it from one country to another. So that could be dogs and cats transfer, transferring across the world with people who transfer with work. So little dog flies from Canberra to Washington in America. Um, it could be a zoo animal going from Africa to a zoo anywhere in the world, or it could be um, the trade that I've worked in, which is primary production animals, uh, mainly cattle and sheep, transporting in large numbers by ship to um, other countries from Australia. So not purely related to or limited to things that we consume or eat? No, no, not at all. So you started in 1999 as a a wharfie or a a stevedore, and uh, you did that as part of your last three years of vet school, I understand, to help pay your way. A couple of years later, you then started on the voyages, 57 of them over 11 years. Now, I've read some of your recollections of that time, of that initial three years, and it sounds, sounds to me like the wharf is a pretty terrible place to be. What, what was it that actually hooked you in to go back? Well, it's, it's funny. A lot of people keep saying it sounds really terrible and what is the most horrific thing and blah, blah, blah. But it's actually, I loved my time on the wharf. It was, it was real. It was, um, 
you know, spades a spade. And I was there originally for financial reasons. I was completely broke as a student, as many students will um, will um, be able to relate to. And um, I got this job and it paid beautifully and basically got lots of hours and, and worked there and learned a lot of skills, most of them to do with swearing. Um, so I'm fluent in wharf, unfortunately, <laughs> I still am. And, um, and so, you know, sometimes that can be a drawback. Sometimes it can be fantastic. Um, <laughs> But I've got to say, the people I worked with on the wharf are actually some of the best people I've ever worked with. There was no pretenses. There was no rubbish. You knew where you stood. And as long as you did your job, they they really didn't give a damn who you were, what you did, what you looked like, what your attitudes were, as long as you just got on with everyone and did your work. I suppose um, office politics would have been handled fairly uh, simply and swiftly. Well, it was beautiful and, and that's why I think I struggle so much with the situation I'm in now with the government and the legal system. It's also politically correct and behind closed doors, um, whereas on the wharf it was to the point that, you know, if you had an issue with someone, you basically said, you know, what the hell? And you went toe to toe and you, you know, you didn't get into fisticuffs or anything, but you worked it out um, then and there and walked away and the, the problem was all finished. And there was none of this sort of backstabbing or, you know, I'll get my people to speak to your people and there'll be consequences. It was just sorted. You finished work every day and there was nothing to worry about and the job was done. Back in uh, the late 90s, I imagine that would have been a fairly tough environment for a woman. There wasn't many of us. Um, I think there was three when I started and we got our first female toilet blocks in Fremantle Wharf in 1999, the year I started. Hooray. I know it was awesome. So, um, so the other two girls, Linda and Jill, um, and I sat on the back of my ute and celebrated. You know, not in the classiest of fashion, but we just sat there with a few UDLs and just celebrated and toasted our new Bessa brick toilet block, which um, which may seem a bit random, um, but yeah, it was a it was a big step for us. Well, it's the simple things that are often the best. Um, I would assume that you didn't only handle animals in your uh, life as a wharfie. I'm assuming that came a little bit uh, later. Did you also do other things like just moving containers around? Can you just describe what that environment is a bit like? So the stevedore company that I worked for was called Western Stevedores and they were a bit of a boutique stevedoring company. I think they've gone out of business now um, or they've been taken over by one of the bigger organisations and we mainly did live export and so it was actually originally started by a handful of farmers who wanted the – they knew the live export trade was – a heavy industry out of um, Fremantle and they wanted the animals to be treated properly. So they started this stevedoring company and they used to try and always have one or two vet students um, on the staff and as part of that we learnt but we could also um, teach some of the other other wharfies that we were working with, you know, better animal handling or keep an eye on animal welfare and I, I guess it gave them a bit of kudos as well with some of the welfare groups. So you were right into it from the start, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. The majority of our work, like 99% of our work was livestock. Um, we did the occasional steel ship, but I had very little to do with those. Most of my stuff was just with um, with loading the cattle and sheep ships. So did you see a lot of drama with the animals before they actually got onto the boat? Did that give you an idea or an inkling of what life might have been like on the boat? You got 
an idea of the scale of the industry and and when I say that I don't want to mislead people it's actually only quite a small industry agriculturally um, in Australia there's six percent I think of cattle um, are exported live and seven percent of sheep or maybe the, the other way around so it, it's it's not the backbone of our agricultural industry by any stretch of the imagination but if you're spending the weekend loading 120,000 sheep onto one ship and you're basically there from start to finish, you just see truck after truck, sheep after sheep, and you see that many animals in a short period of time, say it'd be two or three days to load that many many sheep. Um, by the end of that three days, you've seen quite a few animals that have been injured or dead on um, road transport alone, that's all done within Australian legislation, and, um, and animals that get injured just through the sheer numbers and, you know, running up the ramps and going through the process of getting put into their pens and the ship. So, you know, if you have enough people anywhere, you'll have injuries and illness and sickness and, and unfortunately death. If you have enough sheep, you have that. And we certainly worked with a massive scale. It was a logistic nightmare. Can I just come back to that figure, 120,000 sheep Correct. On, one, on one boat? Correct. How do you pa- – I mean, stupid question. How do you pack them all in? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, They've got a load plan, which is uh, done by the exporter or worked out by the exporter before the ship arrives based on the weight of the animals, um, which has been recorded in the feedlot days previously, if not weeks previously. And when the ship arrives, we work out the square meterage of the ship, which we know from the, the ship's blueprint print and um and the weight of the sheep and it's already calculated as to what type of sheep and what weight of sheep and how many can go into certain areas and then we close the gate after that number's been tallied and then we move to the next pen so it's a lot of groundhog day just doing the same thing over and over again but you just walk around literally with a you know handful of papers and a load plan and you load accordingly Something I wasn't aware of that you mentioned just before was the fact that it can take three days to load a ship. Presumably one would have to pity the sheep that got on first. Yes, and that's an interesting point because the sheep that gets on first usually goes to the lowest part of the ship based on stability reasons. So you want to keep your ballast or your weight of the ship um, as low as possible. So for stability reasons, you wouldn't load the the top of the ship first because you would become top heavy and more likely to capsize. So the first ship on or the first, um, and and there is no singular for cattle. So I'm going to say the word beast, but I don't think of them as beasts, but instead of saying steer bull cow. So the first beast or the first sheep that goes on goes to the bottom of the ship which means that um, on the other side, when we start to discharge them um, or unload them on the other side of the world, wherever we go to, they're also the last animal off because for stability reasons we unload from the top down. So they really are the worst off, aren't they? They have by far the longest voyage. I want to come, a little bit, I want to come back to the conditions on the boat in just a minute, but uh, fast forward 11 years after you started actually doing the voyages, mm-hmm. what, what made you stop? Um, I didn't intend to stop. I bought a small piece of land just south of the Brisbane or the Queensland border and I went to start up a, um, a little farm for myself and do some consulting work and continue shipping from there because one of the joys of, or one of the beauties of being a seafarer is it doesn't matter where you live, they always fly you to the ports because you can't just base yourself at one port because guaranteed if you do that the ships will leave from another port the next time and 
you know, you kibosh yourself. So um, so you can live anywhere you want and when your voyage is to start, you just fly to that, that ship and then take off from there. So I started a little farm and just started setting it up for my own little lifestyle and um, and intended to, to keep sailing and to consult to industry regarding different things, slaughter standards, um, animal welfare issues, etc. And um, during that time, the review for the standards of the Australian livestock, sorry, the Australian standards for exporting livestock, which we call ASIL, um, there was a review for that coming up and I was asked if I could be the technical advisor for that review. Okay, so as you start the voyages, let's just get down to some of the, some of the difficult questions here or some of the difficult uh, realities, I guess you could call them. I, I've got an image of you walking up the gangway of onto a ship mm-hmm. and it's and presumably it's it's being loaded or hasn't been loaded or is in, is going to be loaded shortly and uh, in my mind's eye I'm picturing you walking up you've got a maybe a kit bag or something and uh, you've got some equipment with you and you're setting out on a voyage and the question in my mind is what are your thoughts as you commence a voyage knowing what you're about to encounter what are you thinking about is this is this just a day at work for you? To paint a picture for you, especially if I'm sailing out of Fremantle, um, usually I'll have flown from somewhere. I'm, I'm generally based in New South Wales. So I'll have flown from New South Wales and I'll catch a taxi to the wharf in Fremantle. Uh, by the time I've got to the ship, so I've had to walk across a couple of hundred metres of um, cement to get to the ship, a couple of hundred metres of wharf, I'll have set a low and caught up with a heap of wharfies that I used to work with. So it's kind of like this great reunion and everyone pulls a piss or says hello or, you know, says day and, and they're all lovely. And, um, and it's kind of fun to catch up with your old mates. And then usually when you walk up the gangway, um, yeah, you've got a kit bag thrown over your, bag, over your um, shoulder because it's a, gangways are kind of notoriously awkward to walk up. And, um, and it's funny, it's kind of like you're going home. If it's a ship you've sailed on a lot and there were some ships that I spent years essentially just doing repeat voyages on. So, for example, you know, one of the ships I had my own pot plant called Barry. <laughs> and um, Barry, Barry the pot plant lived in my room. And if I, was, um, if I was transferred to another ship for whatever reason for a voyage or so and then returned to my ship, the steward, um, this lovely guy, Fernandez, used to, who was from Goa, he used to take my pot plant and look after it in his cabin. And when I came back, little Barry would be back in my cabin and he'd be all watered and happy and healthy and I had my own doona cover and, you know. It, so it was kind of like I had two homes. I had one back on land and then if you had the right environment on a good ship, you had another home there and it was really nice. You'd get to the top of the gangway and, you know, if, if they knew it was you coming, you usually – well, I tended to have a good relationship with the, the crew and you'd be greeted like a long-lost relative that they actually wanted to come visit. So it was great. Well, no place like home. So it sounds to me like, it sounds to me like there was uh, some kind of disassociation, though, with what was about to take place in the, uh, in the holds. Look, I liken it most to, and, and I've never been deployed to war, but I liken it most to, um, I guess, how a soldier must feel when they get deployed. They leave their home and they fly to a foreign place or a, a different um, base to leave Australia from, but they get reunited with their platoon or their regiment and so they're with a group of people that they've worked with and they've gone through trying times with before and they know that they're not necessarily going to have an easy 
kind or nice job of what they're about to do, but they've got each other's backs and they're all trained and prepared to do what they're trained to do. And so it's a bit like that with a ship because not every voyage is, you know, a super challenge and a super animal welfare nightmare. Um, they all do involve an element of stress and suffering, and and I won't deny that. Um, just the cumulative road transport, preparation, drafting, loading, um, being on the ships is, is stressful for, for those animals. Um, but they don't all end up with horror mortalities and, and really high mortality rates at all, um, higher than we would like or higher than, than I think they should have. But... Um, but, yeah, we know that some voyages will be really boring and you rely on your crewmates to watch DVDs with at night and to have a bit of a laugh with. Um, and other voyages are really awful and you need to be reliant on them to have your back and you to have their back. Let's think then a little bit about what it's like for the accommodation for the animals. And uh, I'm imagining that many people might have some kind of a romanticised view of travelling by ship you know, uh, staying in a cabin, perhaps a game of shuffleboard on the decks. But, but we're talking about crowded pens full of very, very large animals. And from the, uh, from the reports that have come out and from the, uh, the media that we've seen, these pens are deep in animal excrement. How bad is it? So they're not deep when we start. When we start loading the ship, the ship is pristine clean for quarantine purposes. You could literally wipe a white glove over everything and you wouldn't get any dirt whatsoever. It's been scrubbed the whole return voyage, which is empty of livestock, and um, and the crew on board, that's all they do on the return trip is just basically high-pressure hoses, disinfectants, and they just literally scrub the whole thing with, um, in the end, little tiny like pan scourers for mm -hmm. all the railings and stuff, especially sheep ships that get um, all the lanolin builds up, so you've got a greasy residue as well. Yeah. So it's a really huge job, and, of course, they, stop, they start from the top and work their way down because it will all drizzle down on top of them otherwise. Um, the best analogy I can give people who have never been on one of these ships is if you're in a multi-storey car park and you look around and you've just got floor after floor after floor of the same-looking concrete um, car spaces, if you imagine that you put uh, sail yard cattle rails in there, that's it. That's a ship. That, that's an interesting thought. and Perhaps that's something that people don't really think about, that the ship's got to come back and it doesn't have animals on it because we're not importing them as well. So it's a, it's, it's a, a one-way situation in terms of uh, animal carriage. But um, does it take long for things to get bad? No, it doesn't. And, um, and, and that's what's really interesting is a lot of the PR vision that people have seen in the past has been voyages that are either being loaded or very freshly loaded like that day. Um, and there's very little manure on the ground. The animals are still clear um, and clean and, um, and everything looks quite uh, sanitary, I guess, and all the railings, you know, because they often paint them white or they're aluminium. And, um, and so they all, all look nice and clean. At the end of the voyage, it's a totally different story because, you know, we feed thousands of tonnes of fodder. That all gets processed into thousands of tonnes of animal urine and so it's sewage and um, and that gets splattered everywhere. The animals have no choice but to lie in it um, because there is not enough room with the stocking densities in our current legislation for the animals to be able to escape it and as a veterinarian or anyone who works on a farm or anyone who's observed animals, um, they don't choose to sleep in their own faeces and to lie down in their own faeces. So um, it's unfortunate that that's what 
actually occurs on these ships. And um, we go through washing cycles. So the build-up probably about every three to four days when we're at sea, we try to wash the, the ships down um, or the decks down to remove the fecal build-up. Unfortunately, often at the beginning of the voyage, especially if they're long voyages, and by long I mean past the Middle East, uh, you might go to, I've done a lot of voyages to Turkey and Libya and Russia, and the longer the voyage, the more provisions you have to take. So the more provisions you have to take, the longer it takes to get, and this is getting a bit technical, the longer it takes to get the um, the bow of the ship out of the water. Mm. The reason we need that is currently the drains for nearly every ship are in the back section of the ship. They're in what we call the aft. So if the nose of the ship is down compared to the the aft of the ship, I can't wash a ship because if I turn the hoses on, all I'm going to do is flood it. Yeah. So we have to use up the provisions at the beginning, at the front of the ship. So that can be fodder in tanks that are down low in the in the ship, uh, fuel, water, uh, sawdust, anything we can use. Um, we use and then once the minute we get the nose up, the very first wash often is the one where we've had the largest accumulation of fecal matter because we've had to wait until the water will start to run backwards. And um, and sometimes if the ship's been incorrectly stowed or we're going for a really long voyage, then um, that can take over a week. More from my discussion with Dr Simpson coming up. If you'd like to catch all the parts to this case study series, then you can subscribe to Learning Capacity on your favourite podcast app. The episodes in the series are numbers 80, 81 and 82. Here's a short snippet from episode 81 where we talk about some of the crazy things that can happen in a foreign port. So, yeah, so I just handed them the knife, gave them no excuse, and I said, okay, tick-tock, you've got one minute, kill it. And um, and they just looked at me aghast, and I've got the gun in my hand, and they start trying to come up with excuses. So I, I had the gun, and the gun's like a, it looks like a pistol on steroids. They're the ones that we use in slaughterhouses in Australia. And um, To find out how that ends, make sure you tune into episode 81. Now back to part one. You've mentioned that uh, the feed ration changes on board because the management of the animal's weight needs to be handled differently and that has an effect on how much waste they produce. Can you explain that? So some animals, from my perspective, um, from a veterinary perspective, uh, with voyages, some animals are sold on a per head basis and some are sold on a per kilo basis. So if they're sold on a per head basis, um, there's no incentive for the exporter, there's no financial incentive for the exporter to feed these animals what we call ad lib, which is basically as much as you want whenever you want. Um, and so they'll be rationed to what is considered a normal maintenance ration, so however many kilos per day for those animals in that pen, and that's what they'll get given. If they're being sold on a per kilo basis, it's in the exporter's financial interest and commercial interest to have those animals put weight on during the voyage. So they're fed ad lib, which means they can eat all the time, and um, I guess that would result in an increased amount of uh, fecal matter on the ground. Um, it results in an increased uh, weight gain of the animals, which unfortunately results in a more crowded stocking density because if you're on a ship that might be four to six weeks, four to six weeks long, um, those animals, especially animals such as cattle, they might be putting on a kilo a day. 
So they do actually get noticeably bigger over the voyage. Some can, but if we're on a maintenance ration and, and they're being sold by the head, um, which is generally how I know how they're being sold because I, I don't get involved in the commercial side of things. But I, if, I know, if I know we're not ad-lib feeding, um, it's a pretty safe bet that we're, being, um, we're selling by the head instead of by the, the kilo. And, um, and so we've got the weight gain, which is a problem. Um, well, it's not a problem. It's, it means that our stocking densities actually get tighter and the animals are in a more uncomfortable situation. You wrote an article for uh, Splash 24-7, which is the uh, online magazine uh, for, the, for the maritime industry. Do I understand that correctly? Correct. Now, there's a comment here in that article uh, or in one of those articles where you say, I spent hours at sea in conversation over how wrong what we were doing was, then head back on deck to see how many animals needed killing and thrown overboard next. I'm presuming that this happens sometime into the voyage. Let's say you're two or three weeks into the voyage and things are starting to go bad. What's going through your mind when you know you're having that conversation and then you know you've got to go and do what you just described? Uh, usually fluent wharf words are going through your mind. Um, again, it's one of those jobs you know you just have to do and it is usually deeper into a voyage. So we have what we call long-haul and short-haul voyages and there's a lot of people who have done a lot of short-haul voyages and they are the ones that have sort of challenged some of the things I've said because they've had animals that have been on board for maybe 10 days and, you know, 10 days into a voyage – Animals are coping reasonably well. They're still stressed, but they're, they're generally coping. But some of the voyages I've done have gone into the 40 days point of view. And, um, and when you go through really hot areas such as the Middle East, this time of year especially, this is the Middle Eastern summer, so we're taking animals that are from uh, winter-adapted Australia and um, we're taking them within a period of, say, 15 to 20 days into the Middle East in summer. And that acclimatisation for a, especially a ruminant that's, that's stomach is essentially a big fermentation vat that, that gives off a lot of heat, um, is, is really hard work for those animals. So what will happen is you start sailing, everything's fine. A good example was we had a, um, a guy who used to buy cattle for us for one of the exporters. And we used to say to him, we being the couple of the stockmen and I, we'd say, can you stop buying this type of cattle, like a really fat, hairy one at this time of year because they'll die. And right. he's going, oh, what are you talking about? And I'm like, seriously, they, they do it really hard, these cattle. We need lean cattle, um, not too much body fat, and um, and that's they're the ones that cope best. I'm not saying cope well, cope best in um, in the, the Middle East in summer. And, um, and to this guy's credit, he came on a voyage with us and um, we were short of stockman and he came. He was, he was a good little stocky anyway. And he came flying up to Smoko Room one day and myself and the other stockmen were already up there and he's come in panicking. And I, I had just walked through his decks to get up to the, um, to the Smoko Room, and, um, which is the officer's mess. And, and he was in a complete fluster and he, it was like there was a fire and he's just burst in the room going, we've all got to go back downstairs. They're all dying. They're all dying. And I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about? And he goes, everything, they're all dying. They're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. And I said, which deck? What, what's the problem? Thinking, wow, maybe we've got a mechanical failure or something's going weird. And, um, and he explained the area and I said, yeah, mate. Um, and what, the other stockman and I kind of looked at each other with some black humour laughter and we said, that's what we've been trying to tell you for years. Um, this is what we experience every time we go through. Those animals are struggling 
they're doing it hard, but they're not going to die. They they can survive that. So they had a really high respiratory rate. It was really hot, really humid, and really expected from us. And it was the first time he'd ever seen it, and he was mortified that that's what he'd been um, uh, complicit in without knowing any better because we'd been coming back complaining. And he was like, but, you know, why are you complaining? They, they get there and we're like, yeah, but they have a really hard time on the way. And so we would sit around and talk about this and, you know, he was one of the people that for that comment, for example, he'd go, but this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing it with, with these animals or doing this to these animals. And I'm like, yeah, it is essentially wrong because, you know, there's better ways to be transporting animals, you know, stocking density reduction or to be boxed and um, sent as chilled meat or frozen meat would um, would be a higher welfare outcome. And we would sit and talk about it and I've had – sorry, that's my dog shaking in case you want <laughs> to – okay. Well, welcome to the program. Yeah, there's a couple of them wandering about, so excuse them. Um, and – yeah, every stockman I've ever sailed with has at some point sort of stood over a railing with me and gone, this is wrong, isn't it, what we're doing? And scientists and vets are notoriously boring and dry with things like this and will often say stuff like, yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, get on with your job. Let me just talk about the the suffering that you mentioned before. The stockman comes up and says, oh, we've got a major problem and, and, and you guys just say, well, yeah, that's what happens. <clears throat> Do you think it's possible? that over time humans have become so used to the availability of the meat industry or the, the availability that the meat industry creates that we just think of those beasts as machines and a little bit like, oh, it's a hot day today, my car seems to be running a little bit hot, it'll survive. And, but, but we all know that a car is an inanimate object and it doesn't have feelings. And we then look at the animals and go, oh, look, they're just there to serve our purposes and to provide meat for us. It doesn't really matter what they go through. It'll be okay. Do you see that sort of thing happening? Well, I think that's almost written into our legislation. If you look at the legislation for exporting, we have a 1% acceptable mortality rate for cattle on long-haul voyages where nobody bats an eyelid, and we've got a 2% mortality acceptable mortality rate for sheep that nobody bats an eyelid at. So until we exceed those numbers, nobody investigates or asks what's gone wrong. That's just expected or accepted. Sorry, I'm struggling with that. that yeah, we, we, we accept we accept a mortality rate based on based on percentages. So I'm just thinking about that ship that you were talking about before. With uh, uh, it was 120,000 sheep, yep. and uh, the mortality acceptable mortality rate is two uh, percent. Correct. So we're, so we're talking in the order of uh, two to two and a half thousand sheep here just dying, and yep. we think and we think that's okay. I don't think that's okay, but legally that does not trigger an investigation that anything's gone wrong. Previously, in the previous comment that you made about uh, heading back down on deck after you had talked about the, uh, the wrong of what you were doing, you make the comment that uh, animals are thrown overboard. Um, is that legal? 
there is an organisation called the International Maritime Organisation. Every um, seagoing vessel has to be registered with them and you'll see each ship has a registration number with IMO written in front of it. It's kind of like their individual rego number. And um, they have to, if you're registered with the IMO, you have to abide by the IMO's international maritime regulations. And there is a subsection of the IMO called MARPOL, which stands for Maritime Pollution, and that's their legislation on when and where we can throw um, garbage essentially into the um, into the oceans, and it tells you how many nautical miles off shores and certain shores, if there's special areas where we can throw things. Um, it tells you what you can and can't throw at certain areas. And for example, you can't throw anything ever in um, the Great Barrier Reef, and I believe the Gulf of Aqaba, which is where we approach um, Jordan and Israeli ports, so we go there quite frequently. There's some grey areas as to whether we're allowed to throw certain garbage in the Red Sea and the Black Sea, and I've been trying to find clarification through MARPOL regarding exact GPS locations because, of course, there's big fines with um, marine pollution. But we're not allowed to throw plastics and oils are definitely a no-no. Everything else gets thrown away and the bodies of the animals get thrown and they get logged. My understanding is they get logged as um, it's kind of like kitchen scraps, garbage, because they're meat. <laughs> so they become shark bait. Yeah. So the, uh, the animals that, um, uh, that die get thrown overboard. Uh, presumably this happens when there are significant changes in conditions. In a, a recent article you wrote about the temperature change. Sorry? Happens all the time, nearly every day. So that in a recent article you wrote about the changes being quite severe in terms of temperature and the fact that animals can, can die very painful deaths and often very quick deaths and that often animals can just drop dead. But um, one, of the, one of the comments that I found most challenging was the fact that the animals can heat up to the point where they're almost cooking from the inside out. What's going on there? Yeah, I would say they are cooking from the inside out. When I've um, cut them open to, um, to look at what's happening or I've been killing them, uh, there are certainly changes inside to the meat colour, texture um, that are in line with cooking a roast. And, um, and it's, it's quite disgusting. And they smell like a roast lamb, which is awful. We don't get, as, get it as much with cattle. Cattle are easier to mitigate. A, they're generally a single deck of cattle, sorry, a single tier of cattle on each deck. So there's a lot more headspace. Cattle we can hose down. So if we hit a hot area, we can actually literally wash them and, and douse them with cold water from the ocean or, or ocean temperature water which takes the feces off them and, and washes them down and cools them down and can relieve the temperature in the decks by a couple of degrees. Sheep are a different matter. We still have, and I'm hoping they disappear soon, we still have some ships that have got double tiers. So there's two layers of sheep in each deck. Um, which, of course, gives you double the faeces from the sheep, double the off-gassing from the faeces, um, which is ammonia, and um, and double the heat generated by these sheep. As I said, they're ruminants, so they've got a fermentation vat in their tummy, and um, and that makes heat. And, um, and so these hot spots, 
every voyage when we go through a hot area, so you're going through the Middle East, you know it's going to be hot in summer, there will be an element of heat stress. Not every animal is going to succumb and die to that. Um, the hot spot or the event that I was writing about in Splash that was published yesterday um, tells about the often discrete events where we get high numbers of deaths. In those hot areas we'll get heat stress deaths every day, but we might get between 10, 30, 20, 50, depending on, on how the sheep are going, what weight the sheep are, all that kind of stuff. Um, what is the dangerous thing is when the weather turns on us, um, we either get a mechanical failure, if that happens we're stuffed, and, um, and we might not have ventilation and then that's all sorts of trouble going on and, you know, it's very hard to mitigate that without a great electrician and all your engineers running around like, you know, the proverbial blue bottom fly. Um, but when you hit a hot spot and you can often predict the areas that are going to be of highest risk, so the Gulf of Aden between Somalia and Yemen, the Straits of Hormuz between Iran and Oman and the Persian Gulf itself, they're areas that have the perfect storm combination of um, really hot weather, really humid weather, and it's the humidity that kills these animals. They can cope with really hot weather, but they can't hope, cope with high humidity. And um, and sometimes these areas are really still of wind. So when we've got no cross breeze in the open-sided ships that are partially reliant on natural air, to flush out uh, toxic gases such as the CO2 the animal breathes out and the ammonia that's um, being developed on the decks, then we're in trouble. So the humidity that when you wet um, uh, sheep feces with humidity, that increases the off-gassing of ammonia. So you start to get this, they're really hot, they've got a toxic gas environment and they just do really poorly. But often these events might transpire in half an hour or you could have four hours of complete hell. And occasionally I've had it happen, they're usually in the middle of the afternoon. So you sort of know you're going to be okay until about one and then you really have to just have your eye on the ball between one and five because that's the time when, when these events will happen. Um, but I have been caught out where we've all been in bed and say between two and three in the morning there's been an event happened and by the time we get down onto the deck, not that we can do a lot anyway, um, we've lost multiple hundreds of animals. Hundreds of animals without you having enough warning really to do much about it? No, can't do anything. That concludes part one of this three-part case study series on the ethics of live animal export. Make sure you tune in to episodes 81 and 82 to catch the full story. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast or if you're looking for science-based language learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.